Thanks again for being here this morning. I've got to start by saying happy anniversary to my wife. And happy anniversary always at the same time will be to Ethan and Carly because we share an anniversary. So happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Carrie. Uh, we, seven years ago, Carrie and I got married actually right here, physically right here. We got married. So all of our, uh, it's funny, all of our wedding pictures are around this property. And so our kids see them, they're like, oh, you guys went to church when you, it's like, well, yeah, we got married. I mean, they have no idea how crazy that story was that we got married here because we were actually really good friends with the pastor at the time. And uh, when we got married, like anybody who, right when you get married, you get married full of hopes and full of dreams about what's going to happen and where the marriage is going to take you and uh, hopes and dreams of living in a better place than usually the not so great place you start off living when you get married. You hope, okay, maybe we'll move into a bigger apartment or maybe we'll get a house one day or you have hopes for better jobs. Uh, I was in college when we got married, so I hoped that I would finish college one day. I did. Um, Maybe you hope for kids. Maybe you hope to, to move to an exciting place. Maybe you hope to travel when you get married. I mean, take yourself back to when you first got married. And think about the hopes that came with that. Think about the dreams that you had. Think about the things you were expecting. Maybe ex- expectation is a better word. Of what you thought about the future when you got married. Or maybe your hope is to get married. Maybe you're expecting, hoping, dreaming of getting married one day. But hope's a funny thing, right? It's something we look forward to. It's something we want. It's something we hope in the future will fix maybe something that's broken right now. But I think as we end the book of Haggai, hope is a fitting theme to talk about for these last four verses. So if you have a copy of Scripture, open up with me to Haggai chapter 2. And I'm going to read starting in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, we ask for your help to understand your word. We pray that it would lead us to Jesus, and we pray that it would make a lasting change in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage God was bringing a word of hope to his people. And you might not see it on the surface, but that's exactly what he's doing. These people felt how fickle their kingdom was. They understood, the God's people, that their kingdom was nothing to be guaranteed. Maybe they had presumed upon it before exile, but prophets God had sent over and over warned them of impending doom and judgment if they didn't stay faithful and obedient to God. I don't know if they didn't take it seriously, they didn't care, probably a little bit of both. But what they learned was that there were actually two threats to their kingdom. One was external. Like every kingdom, there's an external threat. And to God's people and God's kingdom, the external threat was exile and to be overthrown. 
And prophets warned over and over that this was a reality and it was going to happen if they didn't realign themselves with God and God's ways. But there was another threat. And this is why, actually, there was an external threat. There was an internal threat to their kingdom. And it was sin and evil. You see, as many good kings as there were in God's kingdom, there was many more evil kings. Go read and it starts off on a bad foot with Saul. And then you have this ideal king, David. And then it seems like after David, if you read the book of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, things only get worse. There was an internal threat to God's kingdom for God's people. And just like all kings and all kingdoms on the world's terms, they're never very stable and long-term, right? Because it's almost always about military might and political power. But Israel had this dual threat, not just outside military might and outside political power. They were actually their own worst enemy because they couldn't stay faithful to God. And then that's why they find themselves in this situation in Haggai 2, having just been exiled and just come back. They find themselves in the land, hooray, but actually not even a part of their own kingdom. They're still under foreign power. Remember, we talked about King Darius. And so this word that came to the people was actually a word of hope. God is saying, in the future, I'm going to take care of this external threat. I'm going to overthrow all of these other kingdoms. I'm going to overthrow all these other powers. And you actually read a a little nugget here that's cool. He says, uh, I'm going to overthrow the chariots and their riders. That's a little nod to the song of Moses in Exodus. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea, is what Moses says as he rejoices that God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. So it's a little nod to the way God saved them out of that. And he's looking forward to the future saying, God, you're going to save us again. You're going to overthrow these evil kingdoms again. So the first thing that we see in this passage about kings and kingdoms is we see the loss of a kingdom. We see the two threats to their kingdom, both external and internal, but then we see God's promises and their hope. God continues to give them hope by saying these things, that he's going to do two things. He's going to overthrow kings and kingdoms of the world, and he's going to reestablish God's chosen king. Isn't that good news? That's good news for them. They understood their kingdom was fickle. They understood their kingdom couldn't last on their own, and God says, look, I'm going to reestablish a king, and here's the way he says that. You may be looking at the verses saying, wait a minute, God doesn't actually say I'm gonna reestablish a king, so where are you getting that? In verse 23, he's talking to Zerubbabel, who's actually in the line of people who would have been from David. So he would have been a rightful king, but he's not. He's just a governor because they were ruled by foreign powers at the time. He's talking to Zerubbabel, and he says, I'm gonna make you like a signet ring. And you say, What does that mean? And he's referring back to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 22, where God says that if the last king before exile, he says, if you were like a signet ring, I would tear you off. He's saying, I will tear off this unfaithful king and this whole idea of kingship of people that have not followed me and not been faithful to me. I would tear off that kingship like it was a ring. I would take it off and say it no longer belongs part of me. But now he's looking at Zerubbabel after exile, and he's saying, I'm going to put you back on. And he's using the same language. He's saying that he is not forsaking his promise to provide a king. 
What a fitting message the week before Advent when we begin to celebrate and look ahead to Christmas, the coming of the true king. But God is saying right here, I'm not forsaking my promise to provide a king. So the two threats that threatened God's kingdom, external powers, God saying, I'm gonna overthrow them. Internal instability because of evil and sin, God saying, I'm gonna provide a king. Now he's talking to Zerubbabel, but this was almost certainly not a promise just for Zerubbabel. In fact, he didn't even see this promise come all the way to fruition. God's people would have heard this as a promise not just about Zerubbabel, the individual, but about the bloodline of Zerubbabel, his lineage, the people that would come after him. His children's children's children. Somebody from the line of Zerubbabel would be the king forever, just like someone from the line of David would be established as the king forever. That was their hope. Their hope was that God was going to bring somebody that would sit on the throne and never be overthrown. God, in this passage, is staying faithful to that promise. Now, we have a little bit of this context now. It's a future-looking passage. I'm about to. I'm going to. I will put you back on. But the question for us now looking in hindsight, how does this happen? How would this king come who would overthrow the kingdoms? How would this king come that God would establish once and for all? Well, that brings us to the second point. If if the first point, we see the loss of a kingdom. The second point, we see the arrival of a kingdom. And in the arrival of a kingdom, we can look first at how the king comes. And the way God's king comes is quite surprising. First century expectations was that God would overthrow all the political kingdoms. I mean, think about Acts chapter 1. The disciples had walked with Jesus for years, seen his death, seen him resurrected, and he's getting ready to go back to heaven, and what do they ask? They're looking around, and they're going, yeah, but we're still kind of under Roman power here. So is this the time? Like, you've waited until the last minute. Is now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still looking for the only way they knew how for God to establish a kingdom, and it was through military might and political power. That was the expectation, but that's not how God established his kingdom. He did it upside down. Instead of coming in strength, God's king came in weakness. Instead of coming in violence and force, God's king came in humility and grace. Instead of coming for self-exaltation, he came to serve others. Instead of privilege, he embraced poverty. Instead of pursuing fame, he lived in relative obscurity. He actually fled away from fame. Anytime large crowds would gather, he would either withdraw to a desolate place to pray, or he would say something extremely controversial to get him to go away. Instead of asking his subjects to sacrifice for him, like any king would do, he sacrifices himself for his subjects. Instead of just wiping out evil kingdoms, He actually allowed himself to become a victim of their evil ways. Instead of placing himself in strategic, political, and powerful positions, he spent the vast majority of his time with the least, the last, and the lost. Tax collectors and sinners is the phrase you'll read in the Gospels. Instead of surrounding himself and his followers and just choosing the best and the brightest, 
He chose fishermen. People that no one would expect you to build a kingdom on their backs. Jesus did not look like the king they expected, and he did not act like the king they wanted, but he was the king they needed. So when we see the arrival of a kingdom that in Haggai 2, God is pointing ahead to, this kingdom came in a shocking way. You see how the king comes? He doesn't come in the way that our earthly minds would imagine a king coming. With all the pomp and circumstance, with all the praise and glamour, two socialite parents from the Ivy League school, Well, of course, he worked his way up, finagling his way to work for this person and this person and get elected in the small office here and then slowly working his way up. And of course, I see the path. No, no, no. Born of a virgin. Parents that weren't quite married yet. In a small town of Bethlehem. In in the region of raised in Nazareth to the point where people would say, could anything good come from there? I mean, quite the opposite of what you would expect if you were to draw this thing up from, I don't know, say eternity past. If you have all eternity to draw a plan of of the arrival of a king, you probably wouldn't draw it up like this. And that's exactly the point. How does the king come? Not the way you're expecting. He comes in this beautiful upside down way. And we see how the king comes. Now we'll look at what the king does. He takes on both threats to God's kingdom. And I want you to see how cool this is. Remember the threats, external and internal? Well, the external threat, foreign kingdoms, pagan powers, Jesus is actually a threat to them because it's proposed that he's the true king of Israel. Well, who doesn't like to hear that? The earthly king of Israel at the time, so the, the Roman rulers, So Rome has an issue with him, but then he's also claimed to be the true Messiah. So he's a threat to the internal threat. See, the internal threat of the kingdom was that God's people weren't aware of his ways and walking in his ways. The external threat is that foreign kings and powers are going to overthrow the kingdom. And Jesus steps in, and guess who hates him? Both external and internal. External power said, no, 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 you're you're not going to become the king. Go read the early chapters of Matthew where Herod is so insecure that someone else, these wise men come and say, wait, where's the king? You're you're looking at him. But then the Jews are so insecure, they say, there's no way you're the Messiah. Isn't he supposed to do this and, and this and he's not supposed to act like that and you touched a leper and you're healing on the Sabbath? Jesus steps in and he takes the threats from both of those sides and so both the Jews and the Romans work together to crucify him. And in his crucifixion, we actually see the enthronement of Jesus where he doesn't wear a crown of gold but he wears a crown of thorns. And so what the king does is he actually didn't come to take life and take over life but he came to give his own life. And in giving his life, he doesn't just overthrow the earthly kingdoms. He actually, he actually overthrows the power that's underneath all the evil kingdoms and all the evil acts. See, he knows it's no good if I just kick this king off his throne because another one's going to come right up in his place and he's going to be just as broken in his heart, just as evil and wicked. That's what we see in First and Second Kings. You could have a good king followed by a bad king followed by another bad king, and then you could have a good one, but then you could have another bad one and Jesus says, I'm not interested in just kicking this guy out so the next guy can come up and prove himself to be 
a sinner. I'm interested in changing the dynamic of sin and of the human heart. So what the king does, he's operating on a whole nother level here. They were expecting him to kick Rome out and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that, but it's going to be far greater than you imagine. So he actually comes and in his death, he destroys sin and death. He took all of his authority, all of his purity, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his glory, and he sacrificed it on the cross to defeat sin so that we could find freedom under good authority. This is the arrival of God's kingdom, how he comes in an upside down way, and then what he does, he defeats the true problem, which is not just a king, not just a political party. Anybody home? America, your greatest enemy is not a political party. It's not. As much as you might disagree, it's not your greatest enemy. Because if your political party was in power, things would still be broken. Christ has come to subdue all of that and say, look, the problem at the heart of left and right, Rome and Israel, Republican and Democrat, every, the problem with all of us is sin. And that's what Christ came to deal with. The sin that's broken the world, that's what he has come to do. But now we see not only how he comes and what he does, but how the king reigns. See, his authority is actually good for us. Earthly kings need something from you. They need your allegiance. They need your loyalty. They need you to stay in line and obey. King Jesus needs absolutely nothing from you. We just sang that. To the king in need of nothing. He needs nothing from you and he actually gives you everything you need. The earthly kings threaten punishment if you don't conform and obey to their kingdom's values. But King Jesus knows you're not perfect. And he loves you anyway. And then he actually gives you every resource you need to experience real life change and transformation. He's not like the earthly kings. He reigns in a way that comes alongside you and helps you. Earthly kings are always worried about their rule coming to an end. So they're very insecure. They might not get voted in next term. That some external power is going to come in and wipe them out. King Jesus, though, is the eternal king. Having faced the thing that wipes out every other earthly power, death, and walking out the other side, he's resurrected from the dead. And we never have to fear that his kingdom will fall. So the arrival of God's kingdom comes in Jesus. That's the story of the gospel. You know the word gospel means good news? And do you know the way it's used in scripture? Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news? It was an announcement. It was news. It was almost always used in the sense of uh, someone bringing good news that someone has been defeated and a king reigns. The gospel is the good news that Jesus reigns. So while in Haggai they had experienced the loss of a kingdom, in Jesus we see the arrival of a kingdom. And now we've got to inspect our own lives and look at life in the kingdom. And life in the kingdom of Jesus begins with submitting to the king's rule. Can you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Can you really make that your prayer? Can you say with John the Baptist, I love this little snippet. He's doing ministry and tons of people are coming to be baptized and the Jews are starting to get worried like, who is this guy? So they're asking him questions. Are you Elijah that's to come that we're supposed to look forward to? And they finally go, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. And I think in that little story of all the other things we learned about John the Baptist and all the other ways we could talk about lessons to learn from what John the Baptist was doing and saying and preaching, that one little snippet may be the most difficult for us to obey. Are you willing to admit that you're not the savior of the world? That you're not the king and queen? Are you willing to submit to the rule of Jesus? What other kings are you living for? And what other kingdoms are you asking to come in your life? Can you turn away from your own kingdom and your own will and live in a posture of submission to Jesus? That's really difficult for us because we all live with a king and queen complex thinking we know what's best for our lives. Anyone who gets in the way of our will can experience our wrath. So life in the kingdom begins with submitting to the king's rule, but, but it continues on that we've got to walk in the king's way. What kind of kingdom is Jesus' kingdom? It's the kind of kingdom where sinners are forgiven. It's the kind of kingdom where the broken are redeemed. And the kind of kingdom where the weak are not cast out, but are called in. I couldn't help but think about the Beatitudes when we're talking about the kingdom of God because they paint such a beautiful picture of how God's kingdom is truly upside down. Who are the blessed people? Well, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Let's let these Beatitudes shape how we view God's kingdom. If we're gonna walk in the king's way, what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? Or are you busy trying to be strong? You gotta be strong. God's never gonna give you anything you can't carry. That's a lie and that's nowhere in here. Just side note. He'll give you all sorts of things you can't carry. Because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. God's kingdom is the kind where, are you in, is your spirit deep in your soul? Are you poor? Do you have a poverty of spirit about you? Come on, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not the savvy or the shrewd, but the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for power, for authority, for pleasure, for money. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Mm. How much in our world do we see payback and revenge? But he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If we're gonna live under the authority of the king that's looked forward to in Haggai 2, that comes in Jesus, and we're walking in the king's way, are we willing, are we willing 
to let the Bible tell us what this kingdom looks like. It doesn't look like what you think. It's not a clean yourself up and then come in kind of kingdom. It's a come to me all who are weary and heavy laden kind of kingdom. It's a, uh, the kind of song we, I think we sang it last year. I was just talking with Nathan about this week. Come, come ye sinners. It's that kind of kingdom. We don't come and try to hide the fact that we're all sinners in need of grace. We come exactly under that banner with no pretense about us. I'm well aware. We pray every Sunday morning from 8 to 9 right here, and we come the last 15 or 20 minutes and pray together. And I was just overwhelmed this morning that there are going to be sins and needs and brokenness that I will never know here this morning. There's going to be things in your life that even the people you came with this morning probably don't know. Burdens you're carrying, brokenness you're experiencing, suffering that's gone on in your life, sins that you are ashamed you can't break hold of from now. There's going to be things in your life that no one in this room knows about. I hope we have the kind of culture where we can begin to break through some of that and talk about it and not have the expectation of shame and embarrassment, but instead have the expectation of I've got to talk about it because I need help and grace. But the reality is we'll never get to the bottom of our own hearts. Part of that's because we don't even know ourselves perfectly and we never will. But what's the king's way? It's the It's the king's way for him to look at you and know everything about you and say, like the father in Luke 15, kill the fattened calf, we're having a party. Put the best robe and the best ring on their finger because my son was lost and is found. He was dead, now he's alive. Not because the son was worth it. Not because the son did enough righteous things. Not because the son had a well-written enough apology but because of the Father's grace. That's the way of the King Jesus. And the last thing I want us to look at as we look at life in the kingdom is to circle back around to this theme of hope. Because this was a word of hope to them. They were hoping in the future King of Jesus. And now we look back and we see that Jesus has come, but we're still a people of hope hope we have king jesus we know what he's done but in some ways we're still hoping because we feel the effects of our broken world every day don't we it's this already not yet tension christ has already come he's already died for us you already know him but he's not yet fully and finally wiped out every sin every ounce of evil in this world that day is coming but we're not there yet we're in this time of tension this time between the times. Do we look back at his first coming and we look ahead in hope of his second coming when he's gonna make all the wrong things right? I think it was J.R.R. Tolkien who said, he told C.S. Lewis this, he said, he will make all the sad things come untrue. But as I'm thinking about hope, here's what I thought of. Do you let yourself hope? Do you let yourself hope? Have you been let down too many times? You don't let yourself think that a good thing might happen. Do you let yourself hope or are you too quick to try to fix the brokenness yourself? 
something's hard in your life is your first reaction to try to put it all together or maybe distract yourself. So you know what's required for hope? Tension. Unfinished business. Unfulfilled expectations. That's what's required for hope. You can't hope if there's no tension in your life. What are you hoping for? If, if you feel like you have heaven right now, what's there to hope for? But here's our challenge. Any ounce of brokenness we feel, guilt, pain, suffering, any sort of tension of the fact that we live in a broken world and we just try to ignore it and distract ourselves, we're missing God's opportunity to hope. Hope requires tension. It requires sitting in the pain of what is while we look forward to what will be. They were living in tension in the book of Haggai. In the land, started the temple but not finished. Knowing that God was going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, to be the king, to overthrow these other kingdoms. See, hope is in the gap between our reality and God's promises. But I wonder if in our life, when we look at our reality, if we're so impatient, I am. I wonder if it's true for you too, if we're so impatient that we're not willing to wait on God's promises. And so we're trying to fix here and now. Hope requires tension. It requires sitting in the pain, sitting in the difficulty. But hope requires you to stop trying to fix your circumstances and to start fixing your gaze on Jesus. That's what hope requires of you. In Haggai 2, they needed to stop fixing their gaze on all their problems, on their paneled houses, on building their economy back after they'd been in exile. They needed to stop fixing their circumstances, and start fixing their gaze on God's promises. And that's exactly true for us. We need to take a pause from trying to fix our circumstances. Not that they go away. Not that your responsibility ever takes a break. Not that your bills ever take a month off. Not that your job will let you have a six-month break while you focus on Jesus. But finding a rhythm every day where you can slow down and admit to yourself and to God, though he already knows, that you can't fix everything that's wrong with your life. You can't fix everything that's wrong in your heart. But hope is when you can acknowledge brokenness, you can acknowledge sin, and then you turn it over and say, God, only you can fix this. Jesus, only you could put this back together. Only you could forgive a sin like this. Only you could love a sinner like me. Hope happens in that tension. And so this morning, heading into Thanksgiving week, and then next week we're going to begin a series in Advent looking at four different psalms. This is kind of a pre-Advent sermon because I'm going to invite you this morning to hope. But what that means is I'm going to invite you to be still. And so I would like for all of us to pray even before the band comes back up. 
in our gospel community group last week, we asked, what are you trusting Jesus for right now? Or what do you need to trust Jesus for right now? What have you been trying to do on your own that you need to turn over to the king of God's kingdom? In what ways are you hoping for God's kingdom to come and make something right? What are the holes in your heart that you've been trying to fix on your own? How have you become particularly aware of sin and brokenness in your heart lately? And what have you been doing about it? You've been trying to ignore it? You've been trying to just do better? You're trying to pretend like it doesn't exist? hard to sit in the brokenness of our lives just like it was hard for the people in Haggai's day to sit amidst the ruins of what was formerly God's glorious temple and kingdom but it's in that place of need in that place of brokenness that God meets us with his promises and he invites us to hope again Father, we open up our lives to you this morning. Hyper aware that we cannot fix ourselves. Hyper aware that we make really bad kings and queens. Uh, Very aware that we need the good king, Jesus. So God, would you give us the grace, the humility, the self-awareness, the wisdom to take a good long look at ourselves to see our brokenness, to see our sin, to see who we really are in light of you. And then understand that you're not asking us to fix ourselves, but you're inviting us to come to Jesus and to hope in your promises that the sin we can't get rid of, Jesus, you really do want to forgive. The brokenness, the suffering in our story that we can't seem to get past and process through, you really do want to heal and redeem and use So God, we're here this morning uh, imperfect and in need of grace, but we are at the fountain of all grace looking to not just draw water from a well, but we're looking to drink living water this morning. Jesus, we pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven, in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, in our places of work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Let your kingdom come, God. We love you, King Jesus. So the band's gonna come back up and get ready to sing a final song for us to respond to God's word. And I just want to invite you to stay in an attitude of prayer. Because God is inviting you to respond to his word. And I don't want us to move too quickly past that. I want us to really consider 
how we need to respond to his word. How is God asking you, inviting you to respond? Are you willing to listen to him? Jesus, thank you for meeting us right here, and I pray that you'd meet every individual in this room right in their hearts. Speak to them from your word. Draw them closer to you. I pray we'd trust the king more today than we did when we walked in. So Jesus, we're here for you to worship you and to respond to you. It's in your name we pray. 